Hey, serious privacy enthusiasts, ready to ace your AI data privacy game? Oh, you bet, Kate. Dive into the world of TrustSark's Nemity Research, your go-to for staying on top of regulatory developments in AI and privacy. Seriously, Nimity Research maintains a massive privacy and regulatory database featuring expert guidance and analysis from legal and privacy pros. So save time on privacy research, cut your compliance timeline, and reduce costs with Nimity Research. Get your regulatory research and insight at your fingertips with a free trial. So get ahead in privacy compliance and start that free trial today. Go to trustark.com slash nimity dash free dash trial. This is Serious Privacy, powered by Trustark. Here are your hosts, Paul Breitbart and Kay Royal. Meta, Google, Tesla, ByteDance. This is the week of the gatekeepers. The first part of the European Digital Markets Act went into effect, limiting the power of big tech players and demanding more transparency and interoperability between services. And many of these companies also hit the news for other reasons, like sex in cars and web scraping, that you will hear about in today's episode. My name is Paul Breitbart. And I'm Kay Royal, and welcome to Serious Privacy. It is quite the week this week, Paul. I think you and I are lamenting that we don't have huge privacy news, but everything else seems to be discombobulated. This week, so well, I mean, you are you are moving house. I am moving house. Uh, although my move is until the spring, but you are building a house. I'm buying and rebuilding a house. So can we can we say that our minds were elsewhere? Absolutely. So unexpected question. I so want to ask if you could live anywhere in the world. Where would you live? <laughs> but only because I'd like to be anywhere out with a roof room. over your head. <laughs> anywhere but here. Um, let's go with that. If you could live anywhere in the world, where do you think for a year? Let's do that. If you could live anywhere in the world for a year, where would you want to live? No considerations on, on budget and work and whatsoever. Nope. New York City. New York. Wow. That's unexpected. I wasn't expecting that one. Yeah. I mean, for a year, that's, that's still a bit of a dream to live somewhere on Manhattan and, or in, in Brooklyn and then experience the New York lifestyle from within. I think, yeah, I think that would be cool. That sounds pretty fascinating. I'm still going to go with the same place I'd like to visit. I don't know if I'd like to live there a year, but I'd like to try New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Might be a bit complex for the podcast, though, all the time zone differences. <laughs> Even more than we currently have. Going to say, <laughs> but we are going to manage to be in the same time zone at the same time in... Uh, few weeks two and a half weeks two and a half weeks we're going to the nordic privacy arena paul and i are absolutely thrilled and honored to be invited uh i've got my flights finalized again i had them finalized and then i moved and i don't want to go back to phoenix to fly there so we're flying from Surprise. charlotte here uh which is a much shorter flight so uh they are now rebooked uh so we can get there but uh, i'm excited to be there we've never been to sweden we haven't done a lot of international travel so we're excited to be there. And for anyone that's going to be there in person, please make sure, give us a note, give us a heads up that you're going to be there uh, so we can make sure that we connect. We'll be on stage, I think, the end of the first day. The beginning of the second day. We'll be on that's- stage the beginning of the second day, but uh, we're always looking for corridor interviews. 
So we'll be saying what was the best things we learned yesterday and then what are we looking forward to today? So we might call a few of y'all up on stage. You never know. Give us a heads up if you're going to be there. My husband, who does the introduction to our podcast and the, what do you call it? The outro, the, the outroduction, the ending, the exit. Uh, he will be there as well. So we've asked permission that he can come in and do his introduction live. He has no interest in attending a privacy conference whatsoever. But he would enjoy that part. And it's good for him that it's just a morning session, right? He can do the intro and listen to the podcast, do the outro, and then be gone. And be out of there. Exactly. Exactly. That's what he'd love to do. So that's wonderful. But for news then, um, I say that it's kind of been slow because it doesn't seem to be anything earth shattering. But this isn't quite as bad as the popcorn week where everything was just everywhere. We have got so a few significant things that have happened. Uh, that if you have not been paying attention to, you really do need to pay attention to. Some of them are some call for comments or some input. So make sure you're paying attention. But nothing that, you know, would get us all excited and go, oh, oh my goodness, I can't manage straight to. Okay, I'm going to take that part out. But meh, meh. I think, I think actually there is one thing I'm still really excited about. Um, what? That is, that is probably about or possibly about to happen. And that is the continuation of the case of Meta versus the Norwegian Data Protection Authority. Yes. Um, as you may recall from a couple of weeks ago, um, the Norwegian Data Protection Authority, in light of the Court of Justice Agreement, Bundeskartellamt, the competition office in Germany, ordered Meta to stop the personalized advertising at their uh, granular level. So building all the profiles and using those profiles for online advertising without any specific granular user consent in place. Um, Meta said, no, we're not going to do that. Uh, we are subject to the Irish DPC, so um, we are going to appeal this decision from the Norwegian DPA. They went to court in Oslo, and the court of first instance has ruled today, uh, September 6th, um, Meta um, has lost the case and that the Norwegians are in their right to impose the processing ban um, under the urgency procedure. Um, so the processing ban is still in place. Meta will have to comply. And given that they haven't complied for quite a few weeks now, they will have to pay up um, because they are uh, imposed. Uh, I believe it was 100,000 kroner, about 90,000 euros or dollars, um, uh, 1 million kroner. So $89,000 uh, um, a week. Um, for non-compliance. Um, so that is something that they will have to pay, um, at least for the foreseeable future, um, until they start complying. Um, the European Data Protection Board will convene on the 19th and 20th of September. Um, okay. So also just in under two weeks. Um, and this will be one of the topics on their agenda. Um, so they will also be discussing what to do with the meta case um and it could very well be that a majority of dpas wants to follow norwegian decision thereby overruling the irish DPC. oh absolutely they're what probably watching it with eyes wide open so yeah this is this is going to be interesting because this could be the first serious wrecking ball to the online advertising behavioral advertising uh, industry um and there are more decisions slated for this fall including on Google Ads and, and some others. Um, but this okay. will be the first one to be decided upon. Um, and I'm very curious to see what that debate will bring. 
That sounds like one to uh, wait with with bated breath. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what this is going to be. Funny enough, it seems to be moving quickly. I know it doesn't seem to be moving quickly, but it really does. Maybe it maybe it moves slow up into us now, and now it's going to move quickly. Well, I mean, for um, European regulators, it's moving quickly. Um, I think this discussion has been ongoing for so many years that right? it somehow also doesn't feel as quickly. Um, and then, of course, we also still have the FTC and U.S. Congress looking into the Google advertising side, yep. um, where they don't rule out that Google ads need to be split off from the rest of Google. So also yeah. there, it, it might still become very interesting in the next couple of months to see what will happen. Yeah. And I mean, it was uh, children's groups that were also calling for Google's pro- uh, for the FTC to probe into Google's ad targeting as well. Um, so I think that had a lot to do for it as well. The, um, it was a request for investigation. We spoke about this, I think, uh, a few months ago as well, but Fair Play and the Center for Digital Democracy, um, actually called for an investigation because of the kids' data that was being impacted with that. And as y'all know, that's one of the things I like to pay attention to. They say that it really impacted, uh, with the done, there was a separate research that Fair Play and the ad buyers uh, backed it up. It ran test ad campaigns on YouTube, uh, which selected users on the basis of various attributes and instructed Google to only run the ads only made for kids channels uh, should have resulted in zero placements. And instead, there were thousands of ad placements. And Google says that these were contextual, not targeted, but regardless, and I don't know if most people listening understand the difference between the contextual and the, the, the targeted. You and I had spoken about that before, but the contextual means that you're placing an ad based on the page or the site or the information the person's looking at. It is contextual. So if you're looking up electronics, it's going to show you an ad for an electronic store. If you're looking up renting apartments, it's going to perhaps show you an ad to buy a house. Uh, different things like that. So contextual advertising. Um, and there's been a big debate on whether or not that would be a lot more private doing contextual advertising because then it wouldn't be tracking users across sites to profile and learn their behaviors. But apparently they were one of the ones that helped call for investigations into Google ads and the FTC is listening to this. They weren't the only ones by far, but the FTC is listening, but they seem to be racking up more check marks on the on the bad side of the report card than they are on the good side of the report card. So that will be Mm -hmm. exciting. Yeah, no, I fully agree. Um, And while we are on the topic of ads, um, one of the things that will be regulated more strictly in the European Union is also online advertising because also today, again, September 6th, uh, the European Commission has announced the designations for the gatekeepers under the Digital Markets Act that will enter into force uh, in a couple of months' time. Um, no surprises as to who are the gatekeepers, so the companies with real digital market power. Oh, tell me, tell me. So we've got Alphabet, Google's mother company. We've got Amazon. We've got Apple. We've got ByteDance. We've got Meta. And we've got Microsoft. Oh, surprise. Very big surprise, obviously. But you see that, for example, for social networks, we've got TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn uh, for these companies. For uh, instant messaging, we have WhatsApp Messenger. For video sharing, it's YouTube. For search, it's Google Search. 
browsers, Chrome and Safari, operating systems, Android, iOS, and Windows PC operating system for intermediation, Google Maps, Google Play, Google Shopping, the Amazon Marketplace, Apple App Store, and the Meta Marketplace, which I've never seen anybody use, but apparently they still meet the threshold um, of large use cases in, in Europe. For being that, okay. And, and for advertising, it's Google, Amazon, and Meta. Um, still under investigation, um, whether they meet the thresholds are Microsoft Bing, Microsoft Ads, Edge, and uh, Microsoft Advertising, and also Apple's iMessage to see whether the use nice. cases for those are also meeting all the large-scale standards, and that should be concluded somewhere between now and the end of the year. And also, Apple's iPadOS could still be a part of a further investigation. Gmail, Outlook, and the Samsung Internet browser have not identified um, as core platform services. And that means that for all of these companies, they now have the next six months for a full list of um, activities that they need to implement. Um, they need to start providing interoperability. Um, they need to allow their business users to provide access to the data that they generate as part of their services. Um, there needs to be more independent verification advertising. Um, also, the, contra the contracting um, should be made easier. Um, and they can't right. keep virtual monopolies in place anymore, or for example, to prevent consumers from linking up to businesses outside of their platform. So this will have a consequence, for example, for Apple's App Store, um, but it might also mean that from WhatsApp Messenger, you need to be able to also reach people who are not using WhatsApp. So it could be that there needs to be um, somehow um, a communication possible between somebody who's using WhatsApp and somebody who's using Signal or iMessage. Interesting. Speaking of Signal, you reminded me of something that made my little privacy heart go pit-a-pat. Uh, as we were taking my youngest daughter shopping a few weeks ago as we were leaving the state, and she's transitioning over to doing her medical, oh, I don't know what you call them, the, the short-term things before they do residency here on the East Coast. She needed East Coast clothes. As they were arriving at the store, they started saying, why are we using Facebook Messenger? Why aren't we using something more private? Why are we mm -hmm. using something that they can use our data? I mean, Signal's private. I mean, privacy's kind of like a right that we have, right? Why are we letting companies use our data? Why aren't we like protect more protective over our privacy? And I was like, oh my goodness, y'all are actually talking about privacy. So they were talking so about- So you are listening in the end to what you are saying. They started with the question of why are we using Facebook print, uh, Messenger rather than something more private like Signal? I said uh, convenience and user preference because I tried to get them to use something more private years ago and they refused. <laughs> so it made my little heart go pit a pat. They're like, I'm, I'm fairly sure that they're just scraping all this data and using it for things we don't imagine it, like advertising. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you're fairly sure? I know they're doing that. You doofuses was the public what's the plural of doofus doofy so these are adults young adults in their i would say right at 30 29 to 32 range but still i mean that they start it's better that they start realizing now than never right 
I mean, right. I was very proud of it. It was like, wow. The fact that they're like, it's like a right we have. And I'm like, yes, it's exactly like a right you have. So very good. And I told them I was going to use their their conversation the next time I had the opportunity to brag on young adults being privacy conscious and aware. So, so much for really their good. privacy. Right? Exactly. I said I wouldn't use their names, but, you know, whatever. Uh, I didn't use their names, but it is my youngest daughter. So, Actually, yeah, that's not identifiable at all, right? Yeah, that's not, that's not, yeah, divulging any and all is both my daughters. I was very proud of them. We do have some other news since we're over in Europe right now. So, um, didn't, um, Commissioner Rainder that just stepped down, didn't he take an interim role that I heard? I was just looking for the story. Well, it's more complicated than that. Uh oh. Okay. It's, it's him and Herova, right? Yes. Yes. And yes. Um, it's actually the competition commissioner. Um, Margrethe Vestea, the, the Danish commissioner, was also executive vice president for the commission in charge of competition. Okay. She has taken a temporary leave of absence because she is in the running to become the president of the European Investment Bank. Yes. And you are not allowed to run for another office while you are in the European Commission. There are very strict rules um, about that. So she had to step down temporarily, and her, but because it is a temporarily okay. Because she's stepping down temporarily, Denmark is not able to nominate another commissioner yet, only if she would fully resign, uh, like okay. the Dutch commissioner did a couple of weeks ago, because he is running for national parliament and hopes to become the next Dutch prime minister. He resigns so he can be replaced. She only steps down temporarily, so okay. that means that her post needs to be filled, and that means that her portfolio... Um, will be covered by other commissioners. So okay. Justice Commissioner, Commissioner Reinders from Belgium, he takes responsibility for the competition portfolio uh, and also for um, for the Digital Markets Act. And Commissioner Jurova, who is responsible for fundamental rights and was responsible for privacy in the previous commission, um, she takes some of the responsibility um, on the digital single market. So, for okay. example, the Digital Services Act. Thank you. Thank you for explaining all that. I just saw there were some uh, interim appointments. I'm like, I need to dig more into that. Absolutely. We have that. So um, before we jump over here to the U.S., there was a, a small blurb on the South Korea government uh, approved the enforcement decree for the Personal Information Protection Act. Um, this happened yesterday, I think it was. So they announced the new enforcement ordinances will enter into force next week. So about the time that this uh episode comes out and it includes unifying the standards for processing personal information. Um, so more developments there. I think I also saw some enforcements in China for something or some guidance that came out in China. They found that there was an academic database that was illegally collecting uh, personal information. If you haven't paid attention, China has been going through quite a few of enforcement actions lately. Mm -hmm. Um, in addition to what Paul and I had shared a few months ago that we learned that they were just showing up at company's door and going, we're here to advise you on what you're doing for personal data. And so do make sure that you're paying attention to some of these enforcement actions as well. I know a lot of companies are still looking at whether or not they're going to stay in China, they're going to outsource to a local resource in China, or how they're going to approach that now that we're seeing more um, information come out. Anything else? Before I yeah. jump here to the U.S. Yeah, there is actually a global thing happening. And that ah, is, what do we got? 
Well, there is, there is a group of data protection authorities led by the Information Commissioner's Office out of the UK um, that is um, starting to pay more attention to web scraping. Oh, nice. You know that, uh, that a lot of organizations say, oh, yeah, but information that is publicly available on the Internet, we can just use it, as no. has been the custom in the US for, for many years. Yep. Um, less so since CCPA was first introduced, but still these data protection authorities, which includes Australia, Canada, the UK, Hong Kong, Switzerland, Norway, New Zealand, Colombia, Jersey, Morocco, Argentina, and Mexico. Um, so all within the framework of the, uh, the Global Privacy Assembly. Those 12 have now issued a joint statement on web scraping and data protection and Good. basically have said um, that websites and especially social media sites should be much more careful in what information is shown publicly um, and how that also can be scraped automatically. Um, it is, I think, um, first step towards um, more specific guidelines out of the Global Privacy Assembly, but also an initial warning that more enforcement might be coming on these issues. Um, we've already seen in the past quite a few cases, especially for Clearview AI, um, where images were scraped from the internet. Um, we have, of course, quite a few cases ongoing, especially in the US, against OpenAI yep. for web scraping to train uh, generative artificial intelligence, the large language models. Yep. And now there is also a, a big warning, especially towards social media companies um, and other websites like uh, marketplaces. Um, where uh, individuals' personal information would be available and that they should also come up with technologies that would prevent um, the automated scraping of all the information from those sites. Which, for all we know, OpenAI may be the ones that come up with the technology to prevent it. Might be with the backdoor <laughs> for themselves, I say cynically. Um, but, yeah. for example, also, you recall the cases against LinkedIn. I think they were settled yep. in the end in the U.S., but there were companies who scraped all of the data from from LinkedIn to resell for marketing purposes and different for things. marketing and advertising purposes and and all of that, which went against LinkedIn terms. Mm -hmm. It breaches terms. It may have been publicly available, but their terms that you have to agree with to use their service indicates that it's not publicly available. Just because it's publicly viewable or accessible does not make it publicly available. You do have to agree to a site's terms before you join it. Hopefully, those terms don't say that you automatically consent to their privacy practices, but they do does. tell you of limitations of what you can do. So there is that. Um, so I'm glad to hear that. Um, I think I think that should be the case just because, again, something's publicly accessible doesn't mean it's publicly available. And can be used for additional purposes other than what people gave that information to that website to use. And I'm not surprised that it's bubbling up, giving the um, controversy around whether or not uh, works developed through AI are copyrightable, uh, which our court here decided they were not, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is the right way to go. I faced a lot of flat for that. And a lot of people think they should be copyrightable. I'm sorry. Maybe in this regards, I'm a legal purist. I think it needs to be created by a human to be copyrightable. Oh, I'm going to be the lawyer here. I'm going to be the lawyer here and say it depends. Because I can imagine you write a prompt that is so specific um, and where you or where you use the AI that is integrated in Photoshop or Illustrator to enhance images. But 
basic design is still yours. I think that's a little different. That's not created totally by it. That's why I say it depends. But wasn't there a case and oh you're gonna make you're gonna make me look this up. Animals creating paintings and everything. Are those Yeah, there were monkeys. Yeah. Monkeys, elephants, dogs, there's all kinds of ones that create paintings and different things. Yeah, we might have to go back there and look up. They have been doing that for decades. I mean I remember from the videos from the nineteen eighties where they gave a a donkey a a paintbrush or a donkey, um, an elephant, a paintbrush uh, to start making works of art and also monkeys. And those were sold for mu- for, for a lot of money. Were they copyrighted? Uh, probably not, because an animal doesn't have human legal rights. So there you go. But while we're on AI, um, I'm sure all of y'all uh, heard this already, but OpenAI unveiled the ChatGPT Enterprise, which is a version that allows companies to use it because this has been coming up in a lot of companies. How can we use AI? They legitimately want to be able to do it. They say it's going to have increased security and privacy using a lot of security uh, encryption at rest and in transit. Um, open Are you going to do commercial for OpenAI, Kay? No, no, no. <laughs> I'm just saying they announced this is coming out. And as I've said before, there is not OpenAI. AI is a solution in search of a problem. Companies want so bad to use AI solution because it does save time and efficient and can the scope of what it can look across. Hospitals and medical have been using this for a long time um, to be able to pick up on early signs of certain types of diseases and markers because they can analyze thousands upon thousands upon thousands and find similarities that a human simply would not be able to do. Uh, so. I don't see a problem. Uh, so they they can learn the large learning, what do they call it? The, the large language model um, actually can learn so much faster than humans can. So um, there are good things, but it is a solution in search of a problem and everybody wants to find a problem for it to solve. And so OpenAI is coming out one, for one built for companies to actually use. So yay, go forth and conquer. And do be careful with your with your terms and conditions and copyright claims that you may get. Yes, make sure you run it past your privacy office, please, and run it past your legal office and run it past your compliance and your ethics office and run it past your security office. But make sure it's right. And negotiate an agreement. Yes, please, please negotiate an agreement. And here's the thing. If you're not stopping your employees from going to OpenAI or ChatGPT or any of these available, they're doing it. They're doing it without you. Um, if you try to block it, they're just going to find other ways of doing it. So the only way to be able to beat, defeat, work with these types of new emerging technologies as they come out is to work with your personnel and your colleagues. Educate, educate, educate. Find a way for it to work. Um, or if you decide it doesn't work for your company, make sure people know that. Make sure they understand why. Understanding is key. Uh, once you understand, that's half the battle. So understanding is key. If you just tell them they can't do it because you don't like it, they're going to do it. If you tell them you don't like it because it offers X many number of risks and put this in jeopardy and your clients are going to cancel your contracts and all of that, that might actually impinge on them that maybe they shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So. Just do all that. Okay, what else do we have? Um, anything else from you? I don't have a whole lot on my side that we hadn't touched on yet. So I have to, well, I have one more and, and one that you actually mentioned before we started uh, the call. The ICO? 
know the um, the Fitbit complaint that was raised ah, by Noise. Yes. Yep. So another complaint from Max Schrems's team. Um, and this case uh, is against Fitbit or basically against Google um, because Google now owns Fitbit. And basically, if you have a Fitbit, a fitness tracking device, smartwatch thingy, you, if you are in the European Union, you have to provide consent for data usage. Um, it can, to some extent, classify also as sensitive personal data because it gives a lot of insights about your health. And all of yep. that data is sent to the United States, um, and you are not able to uh, consent to that, and you are also not able to opt out of that. Yes. They filed a complaint, and I'm just wondering whether this might be um, the backdoor request that will see the uh, data privacy framework come before uh, the European Court of Justice. We might. There there have been some scandals over the years involving it. One was uh, in the military with a secret base overseas. Uh, someone hacked into someone's Fitbit and tracked their movement, was able to identify where the base was. Yeah, and that was that was a hacking attack. Um, the similar watches from Polar were actually yeah. just publicly accessible. You didn't even need to hack them. You can just log on a website and get all the data from users and then just find out where they were located and not just around military bases in Afghanistan. Uh, but also from uh, security personnel, people working yep. for the NSA, the CIA, the FBI, um, U.S. senators, and, and all of that. Um, they really duck deep. Um, I'll yeah. look up that uh, that research piece. And, we'll and put that. We'll put that story on there for it. So um, the other one, uh, the one that I just mentioned, the ICO one. So the ICO has a call out for comment. They're producing guidance on biometric data and technologies. And the first phase, they've already published. The second phase, which is biometric classification data protection, will include a call for evidence early next year. So if you've been looking at that, the consultation that is open right now will run in through October the 20th. So you've got time. We'll put you a link for that. So it's an ICO consultation on the draft biometric data guidance. So feel free to go, not feel free, do, please do go pay attention to that and look at that. If you have an interest in that whatsoever, uh, that's really good. The other things that came up this week, the California Privacy Protection Agency released draft cybersecurity audit regulations. Um, pretty fascinating read if you haven't looked at those or not. And if you haven't heard, I know you have heard because you're a fan of the podcast and we talked about it. The SEC has released <laughs> their cybersecurity rules. If you haven't gone and looked at that, please go do so, um, that you have that. And there was another one that I have, yes. So this was with the NIST, uh, so the National Institute of Standards and Technology here in the U.S. They have a final version of their draft cybersecurity guidance related to HIPAA, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. It is spelled with one P and two A's. It is not a female hippo. Um, they will publish it later this year. Um, it includes specific resources, of course, as they usually always do for small entities, and they also clarify certain terms in there. And so make sure that you're looking at that. They're going to adjust their appendices. So they have their security rules and specifications crosswalk, which has been almost impossible to understand unless you sat down and analyzed it carefully and cross-mapped it yourself and drew lines and squiggles. They're going to make it a little bit easier to understand. Uh, and they're also going to adjust the HIPAA security rule resources. Y'all all know I'm a big fan of HIPAA. 
Uh, so make mm-hmm. sure that you're looking at those as well. I, so recently I was speci- uh, speaking to Jason Cronk. We had him on the show. We were actually mm-hmm. talking about how dense the NIST privacy rule is and how it's not really user friendly whatsoever. Um, I've always been an ISO girl because they're easy to use. They're easy to understand. I'd like to become a NIST girl. So I'm trying to wade through this, but I have to tell y'all it's dense. And I know NIST has working groups. I should probably look at joining one of the working groups, but they're not user friendly. Have you ever tried to understand other than the cybersecurity framework? It's actually pretty friendly. Well, I mean, I've, I've, I've read both the NIST and the ISO frameworks, but um, for me, the problem with ISO is that they are not accessible unless you pay right. over a thousand euro to get access to a document with and guidelines. And NIST is. And NIST is publicly available. Um, and both of them um, are not most useful if you already have a clear law to work with. Uh, yeah. Such as the now that is true. So I'm hoping, yeah, you're right. It's, it's mm. Being accessible is one thing. Um, the other is just the way it's presented. So where NIST was just saying their cybersecurity and presenting it, the crosswalk and the HIPAA, it's redesigning how it's presented so people can absorb it uh, more easier. I think originally they were created by very, very technical people uh, for government. They were not user friendly for the average person working in any kind of technology or with any kind of data, which is, you know, if you're working with personal data, you could be everywhere from a frontline customer service to HR to marketing to whatever. It's, it's people of all different walks. And so it needs to be user friendly to be able to absorb and understand what the standards are. So I'm maybe I will dip my toe in that pond. Who knows? Well, user friendliness is, is always important. That's uh, that's for sure. Yes. I have one more. And that is a study done by the Mozilla Foundation. Yes, yes. <laughs> on uh, electric vehicles. Yes. And they have been looking into how privacy-friendly um, the um, uh, electric vehicles actually are. Um, and, and they're surprise, not. Surprise, they're not. They needed to study that, though, to prove to people that they're not because we kept telling them they weren't and nobody mm-hmm. listens. They're not. Exactly. So um, they actually looked at electric vehicles on a range of issues. Um, and, um, they have looked at 25 different car brands. Um, and all 25 failed the test. Um, it may or may not surprise you that, um, Tesla scored the worst. Um, they really mm-hmm. failed on all levels. Um, French manufacturer. Then that will know. surprise some people. French manufacturer Renault actually scored best, but still failed. Um, on the uh, on the test, they u- looked at uh, data usage. They also looked at uh, user control, at tracking, at also the data security, and also the usage of AI. Um, and yep. also looking at all the uh, various terms and conditions um, that you would need to accept when driving uh, a, a smart car. And basically, you would do that on the small screen of the car or in an app. How many average smart things are there in a car? 3,000, 4,000? Well, too many. I mean, there are cameras, there are sensors, there are microphones, uh, there's, there's everything. Crazy. And there are some, some quite serious, uh, uh, s- serious things, uh, 
Um, for example, Hyundai says in their privacy policy that they will comply with law enforcement requests, whether formal or informal. Um, nice. Of course, it's not something that you that you would want. But here's the thing: all the others comply with the law law enforcement request, formal oh, yeah. or informal, without telling you that they're Probably. telling you. Yeah. Well, at least they're honest about it. That's true. Yeah. Um, it can be worse though. Um, Nissan um, uh, actually says um, that um, uh, they also collect data about your sexual activity. Um, yep. Also, Kia mentions that they can collect information about your sex life. And six other companies say they can collect your genetic information or genetic characteristics. So, in other words, no more backseat sex? Apparently, unless you want it to be in the hands of the likes of Elon Musk. Oh my God, now the cars have cameras. So please, people, no more backseat sex. No more front seat sex. No sex while you're driving. Well, I mean, that is the problem that they've been raising in San Francisco, right? With the self-driving cars that people are actually using to have sex. Yes. So that was a story in the San Francisco Chronicle a few weeks ago. Um and that is, of course, even more documented because then there are also cameras inside the car uh, for security reasons. There's cameras everywhere for every position. They're probably collecting the DNA from the seats, people. At my, you may, I almost think I may pause for you as water right there. But yes. Well, I mean, you can, um, you can imagine that it's only a matter of time before we see the first video leaked of somebody having sex in a self-driving car. Oh, absolutely. Whether it's leaked by the car people, the rental car people, the people who own the car or rent the car, or the people or who somebody who just hacks the camera because of lousy security. Right, exactly. It could be any and, and all of the above. So on that happy note, we'll wrap up <laughs> another episode of Serious Privacy. Not so serious today. It's something No. I'm always want I'm always going no, I'm almost wanting to say people go have sex but do it in your bedroom, but with the listening devices there, Alexas and, and all those kind of things might also no more not sex. be the best idea. Stop sex altogether. Or build a Faraday cage in your house. Oh, there you go. Just saying. Okay, without kidding, um, thank you all for listening to yet another episode of Serious Privacy. Um, join the conversation on LinkedIn. You'll find us under Serious Privacy. You'll find Kay on social media as Heart of Privacy and myself as your old Paul B. Like and review us in your favorite podcast app. And until next week, goodbye. Bye, y'all. That was Serious Privacy. Hey listeners, looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further. Absolutely. TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI. TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost-effectively. And here's the kicker. Protect your company and data with TrustArc's privacy-driven compliance software. Because their deep automation streamlines data privacy governance, cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting. TrustArc's enhancements go way beyond that, helping organizations understand AI better 
and align cross-functionally on data governance, privacy, and security. Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks using frameworks like NIST AI, OECD AI, and the Nemesis Privacy Management Accountability Framework. If you're aiming for compliance excellence, check out Privacy Central, seriously one of my best parts. It uses automation and privacy expertise to understand your requirements, build and manage your privacy program with ease. Oh, I agree. Privacy Central is your go-to to measure your progress toward responsible AI data compliance. Stay ahead with TrustArc's Privacy Central. Visit TrustArc.com now. Ask me and Paul if you have any questions.